again, why do we need all these terms to just tell people to treat people like a fucking human being? I don't care how old they are, where they're from, who they are, what they do, how many identities, intersecting identities they have. It is flooring to me. It's very telling that (laughs) that's something that you have to incorporate and then it has to be mandatory training for people. What is wrong with us as a species? Too much is wrong. This is the first half of a conversation about cultural competence versus cultural humility. We talk about what these terms mean, where they come from, and why they are relevant to all of us. We also share our thoughts on the flaws with these ideas and why cultural humility is better than cultural competence. Enjoy. I was introduced to the term cultural humility back in October of last year. I covered an Afro-Indigenous mental health professional. Or maybe she's a software developer who works with mental health professionals. Shit. We do so many people. I was going to say, we've covered so (laughs) many people, and this woman did a lot of different things. Like, she worked Mm -hmm. with app developing and software developing and trauma-informed therapy and all this stuff. So, anyway. Jill of all trades. Yeah, she is. Mm -hmm. Her name is Sutton King, one of the Black Beauty highlights in October of last year. Editing Raven here. Sutton King is an indigenous health advocate and researcher. She holds a bachelor's in psychology and a master's degree in public health. Just wanted to correct what I said in the episode. Back to the conversation. I listened to an interview by this woman and she was talking about the importance of cultural humility over cultural competence. And that's what we're going to focus on today. These terms are used very heavily in the medical arena and the mental health space amongst mental health professionals. So a lot of the language that we're going to use today will involve terms like clinician, client, provider, these sorts of terms. But cultural humility and cultural competence, as anybody will know, I don't know if you have a job that cares anything about diversity, equity, and inclusion and accessibility, they're already using cultural competence, but possibly haven't started including or incorporating cultural humility. I would say most people are familiar with the term cultural competence to some extent. So we're going to talk about what these terms actually mean as a practice, as an approach, the benefits of one over the other, the flaws of cultural competence. We're going to dive into that. And they do apply to all of us because even if we're not mental health professionals or health professionals at all, This banks on us communicating our needs as human beings with these different professionals. So I do think it's important because there's some people, uh, I think Olivia has talked about in the past, who see culturally competent professionals. And now we have this aspect of cultural humility. And so now people can start talking to these providers and professionals about practicing cultural humility. I had a different idea of what cultural competence was. I was unaware completely Mm. of cultural humility. (laughs) I was a little perturbed by the things that I learned, as we tend to do. Let's hit you guys with some definitions. First up, we've got cultural competence. It is a type of social fluency gained by learning about another culture's language, set of customs, beliefs, and patterns. And I already got an issue with that definition. We're going to get into them, but I'm just like, let's get all the way into it. The use of the word culture there is just not good. All right. (laughs) Problems. I've got them. 
Cultural humility emphasizes intersectionality and understanding one's own implicit biases. And last but not least, we've got cultural awareness. And it says, someone's cultural awareness is their understanding of the differences between themselves and people from other countries or other backgrounds, especially differences in attitudes and values, which to me is cultural competence by another name. At first, when you said that, Raven, in our discussion breakdown, I was like, no. And then you kept saying it. And I was like, wait a second. It is the same thing. Yeah, it's pretty goddamn similar. (laughs) It really is. I will say to simplify these concepts for you, because maybe somebody just heard all of that and they're like, oh, God. Okay, so (laughs) the short of it is cultural competence emphasizes the knowledge of the person in the majority, right? We're counting on people in the dominant culture or a dominant group to make themselves aware and build a knowledge base of an awareness of other cultures. We're going to talk about why that's problematic in a second. Cultural humility allows people to share their own experience. So when you exercise cultural humility, you don't have a knowledge base of, well, you know, this is a common belief or practice in the Black community. Women often display pain this way. You don't do that. Instead, you count on your patient, whether they are Black or a woman or from whatever background, to tell you how they experience pain or tell you to what extent their identity actually matters in your interaction. Because sometimes it fucking doesn't, and then sometimes it does. Sometimes I do need you to take into account that I am Black or I am blind. And there's other times where I don't need you to focus on that. Mm -hmm. I think cultural competence makes people focus on shit that, listen, I will let you know when my disability matters or when my race matters. I don't want you to feel like you need to assume or um, look for some warning signs or red flags or yellow flags or whatever the fuck. Mm -hmm. Just let me tell you. And cultural humility fosters an approach where you just let your patient inform you to what extent their different identities need to be taken into account. Yes, at the core of it, it's cultural humility is centering that person's experience, their lived experience over your learned knowledge. Cultural competence is doing the opposite, centering your learned knowledge over their lived experience. That's pretty accurate. We're going to get into criticism, so (laughs) yeah, we got to just... We're going to criticize the phrase cultural competence. There's several different issues with, one, the phrase, and then two, the concept. So the biggest criticism of the phrase cultural competence is there is no collectively agreed upon definition of the phrase or the individual terms used. There is a history of the term. So the concept of cultural competence found its beginnings in healthcare, like I said earlier. And the general idea actually stems from two papers written by Dr. Daryl Wing Sue, Mr. Terry Cross, and his colleagues. In his 1982 paper, Dr. Sue countered the narrative at the time that the mental health practice strategy and research used were adequate for various minority groups. His paper recommended specific cross-cultural competencies for mental health professionals that are actually still used today. So in 1989, 
Mr. Cross and colleagues expanded on that paper and put forth the definition of cultural competence, defined as, this is a little bit different from what Olivia read earlier, okay? (laughs) It's defined as involving systems, agencies, and practitioners with the capacity to respond to the unique needs of populations whose cultures are different from that which might be called dominant or mainstream American. Cross chose the term culture because it includes customs, beliefs, values, institutions, thoughts, and communications associated with a group, whether it be racial, ethnic, social, or religious. He chose competence because it implies the capacity to function within the context of culturally integrated patterns of human behavior as defined by a specific group. Over the years, the concept has been refined, as you heard, because there's a big difference between the definition Olivia read and the one I read. From a provider's perspective, cultural competence is an awareness of our own limitations, a recognition of our inability to know it all, and a willingness to learn about cultural differences, resources, and individual client perspectives. So that sounds similar to cultural humility. It's close, but it's not quite there. It's not quite there. And I have less of a problem with that definition. Mm -hmm than the ones that we found earlier. Yeah, when you include that willingness to learn bit. Mm -hmm. Changes the game. It's moving away from cultural competence. I guess actually like it's more so that recognition of the fact that we can't know it all. That's a move away from cultural competence too. Providers began emphasizing the importance of cultural competence supposedly in the 70s. I I would like to know the percentage. <laughs> Considering we are still having issues in the 21st century, damn near 50 years later or so. Yes. I've got questions. Well, and something said the 60s, too. It said the 60s and 70s. And I'm like, mm, who are they? Come on right uh, now. Not in the United States. <laughs> not in the U.S. Sure. Right. Yes. At that time, supposedly, providers started introducing this belief into their practices that having cultural awareness would make them more effective at providing care. The idea was for clinicians to have a greater understanding of how their patients or clients talked about and presented symptoms. It was also about understanding cultural factors like diet or preferences that might be contributing factors or might interfere with following a prescribed treatment plan. And this is interesting to think about. Okay, so I'm going to pause this article jargon stuff. They got a lot of $35 words in here and shit. But I'm going to give you an example so that you can understand what we're talking about. Recently, I was listening to a conversation between a Native American and a biologist that works with medical technology. This person who is Native American, they live on a reservation. He was talking about how it is so so, so, so difficult to even convince some people who like still live with their tribal reservations. And I would even say in the broader community outside of that, it's Mm -hmm. so hard to get through to them the importance of going to hospitals and getting medical treatment for certain conditions. I don't know, like arthritis or realizing when your body needs a fucking joint replacement. With good reason. The amount of medical literacy is lacking. And then also, it does not reach people from a place of taking into account 
that there are people who sincerely believe their health condition was caused by a curse and not the fact that at a certain point in time, their body started breaking down and they need to start taking supplements to support that or they need to start doing certain exercises to support that and not like, well, it's a curse. And so I need to pray to these spirits and burn ancestral money or whatever <laughs> the case is. In order to lessen the symptoms of my health condition, there was somebody who I covered last year in March for our Native American history highlights. And she was talking about this difficulty as well, that a lot of the medical literacy doesn't even take that into account. A lot of it starts off this foundation of, well, you know that it's important to go to the doctor, especially if you're experiencing symptoms of an illness or a degenerative condition or whatever. And also medical literature does not dismiss their culture as a practice, um, doesn't dismiss their perspective and their belief system. And that's really hard, right? Because packaged in their belief system are some harmful beliefs. I also like to interject here. You mm. didn't say anything, but I would also wager that it can also be distrust of the medical system because Native Americans and black people in this country have been and still are and still are mm -hmm. uh, abused and mistreated been, and experimented yes, on exactly and they've forgotten and dismissed <laughs> all of that the medical system has been very abusive very damaging and sometimes people go in for something routine and they don't come back out and because of the medical racism that is still very much prevalent in today's society i think that also plays and you're like yeah, i'm glad I, you I brought that history. up because i didn't think about that you know the history of for example native american and black women and even other brown immigrants like latinx women and stuff just being sterilized and stuff when they go in for something minor wasn't isn't there some phrase called the mississippi appendectomy yep that was a sterilization Mm -hmm. And they still do that or they're afraid that they won't get the care, the quality of care that they need. So they don't want to go because they're like, why? I'll just deal with this pain because I ain't trying to die for the dominant culture. They're like, well, now you're sick. You should just go to the hospital. Well, what do you mean? They go to help you. And then they're like, mm, no, you go there to get help. People like you go there to get help. People like me, we have a history and it's not a good one. People don't take that into account. Yeah. But it's with good reason, shit. It is within reason. And I think when people want to build medical literacy, they don't take all of that into account. Mm -hmm. Like you are not confronting the actual problems and conflict that we have with the medical system and medical professions as a group of people. Because, yes, there are individual medical professionals. Mm -hmm. who do have cultural humility, who are culturally aware and will actually listen to you. And then there are people who just make assumptions. And I'm going to say the more medical problems you've had in your life, regardless of what background you come from, you are very familiar with how dismissive, infantilizing, yeah. paternalistic and degrading sometimes people in the medical profession can be, often are. We can all think of experiences that we've had where it's like, I'm glad that technology was there. You know, I'm glad that chemo and radiation exist. As damaging as they can be, I'm still glad that that stuff exists to make cancer a survivable disease. At the same time, I do have very negative 
memories and negative experiences with medical professionals during the time that I was undergoing cancer treatment and recovery and all these different things. I have positive and negative memories of all of that. I went through that as a kid, right? And of course, children are very dismissed. But then like, it's so crazy because even as an adult in the medical profession, sometimes when they address patients, they still treat you like a fucking kid. And the thing is, I was reading all this stuff earlier, going over our notes for this episode. And I'm like, man, why do we need all these terms to just tell people to treat people like a fucking human being? I don't care how old they are, where they're from, who they are, what they do, how many identities, intersecting identities they have. Why do we need to train people on treating other people like humans? It is flooring to me. It's very telling (laughs) that... That's something that you have to incorporate, and then it has to be mandatory training for people. Yes! What the fuck is wrong with us as a species? Too much. Too much is wrong. But yeah, me personally, there are times when I try not to go to the doctor, because I'm like, I feel dismissed so much that I'm like, all I'm going to be doing is paying you money to tell me that either A, you can't find anything wrong, or B, I've had a couple of situations where... I literally have had doctors tell me, well, you're just going to have to learn to deal with that. What? This isn't normal. So why go when I feel like it's not even worth it? So let's get more into the criticism of the term. Um, I just wanted to provide a brief history there so that we knew what the people who coined that term meant and how people have made changes to it. All of that is an important background to have. But still problematic. So one thing is culture, the way it's used colloquially or everyday usage, Mm -hmm. is it refers to racial identity or racial identity as the primary driver of culture. And we know, like, especially us sitting here as disabled women, disabled people, culture applies to way more than just racial and ethnic identity or racial and ethnic background. And you can be parts of different cultures at the same time Mm-hmm. No, you're not gonna be able to assess that looking at somebody no and some of them can be more fluid than others but my biggest problem the way i used to think of cultural competence and i still hold that they need another term for it because you can't be competent in a culture that you're not part of You can have cultural humility and you can take a step back and say, well, you tell me what it's like. I'm not going to come with my implicit biases. I think that is completely different than saying, hi, I'm Olivia and I'm culturally competent um, when it comes to Japanese men because I know a lot about them. I've done a lot of studying. No, I'm not a Japanese man. There are things that I might be able to glean by talking to other Japanese men and learning about what Japanese culture is like and blah, blah, blah. But there is just an intrinsic part of being a Japanese man that I'm not going to get no matter how hard I try, because that's not the life I live. And the way I was looking at cultural competence, because when I first started looking for a mental health professional, I was like, yeah, I want a black woman preferably a Black American woman, but a Black woman because there is just something about being a Black woman in the U.S. that it's one of those situations where what's understood doesn't need to be explained. And it's just something that, not that we all experience Black womanhood the exact same way, 
I damn sure don't have much to say to a bitch like Candace Owens, for example. But at the end of the day, dealing with mental health, dealing with trauma and healing said trauma and acknowledging my shortcomings and things like that. There are things that are very much cultural in being Black American, especially because a lot of the work you do stems from, you know, your childhood. And there's so much there that you can read a thousand books and talk to 10,000 people. But if you haven't lived a version of it, you're not going to quite grasp in the same way. That's what really lit a fire under my butt when you originally said cultural competence and we found those definitions. That's the fuck? Like, this is not what this should mean. I see what you mean. Because, first of all, competence generally means being knowledgeable, proficient, or capable. Mm -hmm. There is no other way to be proficient in understanding Black personhood or Black womanhood other than to find a person who exists in that identity. And of course, like Olivia said, no two people are going to experience that identity the same. But a Black person is going to be closer to being capable of understanding my experience than any white person, at least when it comes to Black personhood, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so I understand why you interpreted it that way. That's a very interesting perspective. I never thought of it (laughs) that way. I always thought of cultural competence more along the lines of cultural humility, uh, Mm -hmm. like that very last definition I read of cultural competence, right? Where people have a willingness to learn. People recognize their inability to know it all. While that's great, I don't think that's the way that cultural competence is talked about in the classroom. Mm -mm. I have several friends who are in school right now to become mental health professionals. One of them I've had on the podcast, Rochelle. Rochelle's been on the podcast twice. And Rochelle has talked about how these classes that they have taken on diversity and inclusion and I don't know, whatever the fuck the classes were called, seem to have this approach that groups of people adhere to these sets of standards. So an example Rochelle gave was how in this textbook, it was talking about how black people, the way that black people speak and the way that we interpret speech insofar as like speaking volume, intonation, inflection, all of these things. It was giving all these very prescriptive approaches to it when you cannot do that. There are some black communities where everyday speaking volume is like a four mm-hmm. out of ten. There are some black communities where everyday speaking volume is a seven. And so the people who come from the black community, whereas a four are like, damn, why y'all yelling? Why y'all so loud? And the people who are a seven is just like, y'all, <laughs> y'all don't know what yelling is. Like, you think this is yelling. I mean, you could even think of it as like suburban black versus urban. Yeah. Um, because there's some differences there. But having these prescriptive approaches to black people in general, like it's not safe to do it. When you are not black, I heard somebody say the other day that the idea that there's a black community is preposterous. And of course, you know who said that, right? That was a white man. Now, the idea of a black community is not preposterous when like, we do have to unite over the fact that across the board, we are mistreated and oppressed in certain ways. And so we have to have a united, multifaceted approach. More multifaceted than united, but yes. It's more united because we need all the different facets to work together. That is true. To that extent, we are a black community. It doesn't mean that everything we do every day from zero to death is the same. That's not what community We're not means. A hive mind. That's not what community means. I think they're just jealous. 
because there isn't <sighs> a really a white community. There isn't a white culture. That doesn't unite over being oppressive. Yes, exactly. And it's just, it's so <laughs> wild. No one would ever say this about, oh, the Chinese American community. Like, no, he was dishing out extra ignorance over a lot of different communities. Oh, well, that this yes. particular dumbass. Y- y- yes, is just that. yes. My point is the way that cultural competence is talked about is there's these very prescriptive approaches to dealing with black people, dealing with Asian people, which, wow. <laughs> what? <'Cause> <laughs> you know, multiple cultures there, but okay. Yes. Dealing with the LGBTQ plus community, which I mean, I don't even how can you have these prescriptive approaches? But that's what's in these textbooks. And I mean, even when you think about the disability community, oh, my God, sit somewhere and be like, okay, y'all special needs versus disabled and just watch everybody go off. Right. You just threw a match in a pile of trash almost you could do this in any community right and talk about the terms that we prefer to refer to ourselves and all these different things or go somewhere and just like what do you think about reclamation and then sit back if you want to be a shit starter yes absolutely if you want to be a shit starter (laughs) so cultural competence the way that it is talked about in the classroom does have this very prescriptive approach black people are this way asian people are this way. very racist actually it concentrates more on race than any other minoritized groups of people, at least the textbooks that are chosen in certain classrooms, okay? There are some textbooks, obviously, you can choose that are not like this, but there's no standard that says that professors have to. They can choose the one that they like the most or their department head. Yes. Department head likes the most, whatever. And so you run into a problem when it's like, okay, we're focusing on racial and ethnic minorities and not minorities like the disability community or the disability sub communities, because we have our own cultures within these different communities and then religious minorities. And this is why it's damaging to say, well, you know, Arab people have these beliefs or Muslims have these beliefs. What well, depends on which Muslims are you talking about? Are you exactly. talking about Muslims from the Middle East or like black people who are like Africa. Nation of Islam Muslims? Yeah. That's two different types of Muslims. And of course, like oh, Muslims really? from the Middle East, of course, we know there's sects of that religion, just like there are every religion. So right. using the term culture here for both cultural humility and cultural competence is not my preference. I wish there was some other word, but really the problem is the way that people typically interpret the word culture is racial or ethnic reference and not all the other aspects of plurality and intersectionality that we have as human beings. I agree with this. The idea of cultural competence, unfortunately, can lead people to practice stereotyping. It might even make people do it more than they were before. Or maybe, you know, you used to do it internally and now you're very comfortable externally stating stereotypes when it comes to a uh, provider-client relationship. Mm -hmm. You do not want to reduce people to just one part of their identity either. Because even if you're not stereotyping, let's say you're sitting talking to me and I'm having a certain struggle and you have ideas about why I'm struggling based on the fact that I'm black. And I'm like, well, actually, it's because I'm disabled. (laughs) But you were so focused on race that, that you didn't consider how my disability is going to impact the way that I'm struggling. Or actually, me being a woman in a male-dominated space, that that's not me really. But I have been in the past. But me being a woman in a male-dominated space, there are struggles that I'm going to have. And if you aren't taught to just listen or ask, just ask, what is the root of this struggle? What is the cause of the internal struggle you're having or the external conflict you are having rather than just making certain assumptions based on the one identity I have that jumps out at you. It's not good. 
We implore people it's, not to do this. Yeah, cultural competence is othering. It is very much othering, and it is diet racism, because you're ascribing a set of values or a set of beliefs or whatever to a person based solely off of this one aspect because of their race or because of the ethnic group that they belong to. To me, it's a little bit, do I want to say paternalistic? Like, I know more about what you are experiencing or I know why you are struggling the way that you are because I have an understanding of your racial identity. I see that as well. Two things can be true at the same time. <laughs> and I, I do believe that there is just this, oh, you're having this problem because you're black. And it's like, mm, possibly, but not in this case, or maybe that's just part of the reason. Dig deeper. I'm more than just black. You know, I'm a woman. I'm a woman in America. I'm a woman of a certain age. I have a disability. This is my employment status. This is my socioeconomic status. All of these things and more comprise the way I live my life. For you to just take one aspect and be like, oh, well, you feel this way because I read about this. Okay. I learned about this in school <laughs> and you feel this way because you're black. It's like, there's so much more to the story. And for you to just focus because they've been taught clearly to focus predominantly on that aspect and be like oh now this makes me culturally aware culturally competent and it's like no no it does not because you read about some customs in a book wow yeah the fact Problems. that there are textbooks out there like that talking about how black people still because they're in school right now yes rochelle is in school right now and to me it's <sighs> it's one of those things that back when i was in college let's see i got my bachelor's in 2014 I took a history of the English language course, and it actually did talk about Black American English, African American vernacular English, whatever you want to call it, Black English. Mm -hmm. It did talk about how Black people do seem to approach language a different way than white people. And that's fine. Historically, yes, that is true. And so I don't have an issue with talking about the history of why there is a term Black English and where that comes from and how it is different from standard English. Because it is. It's not just different in the way that it's spoken insofar as how words are pronounced and put together, diction, but it's also a matter of we do a lot more call and response very naturally. We do a lot more repetition naturally. It's something that's very interesting. Even if you just listen to the way that we do repetition differently from how white people do it. Because the way we do repetition as black people is someone will say a sentence and then someone else says it. And then another person in the conversation repeats that sentence. Like we do this a lot. We do it on this podcast. I edit a lot of it out, actually. <laughs> you know, all of that is fascinating when you're just talking about the way that our conversations are built. That's very different from you need to have this understanding of the way black people listen to and interpret and express language because that's going to impact your relationship with them as a mental health professional. And it's just like, no, at this point, we're just talking to each other's people and I need you to listen to what my problems are and not factor in my blackness unless I bring it up. <laughs> I'm of two minds. I agree with you. I also think learning to understand what is being said to you by your client. Okay, so this wasn't a client situation or patient doctor situation, but in this particular situation, it was a white woman and this black guy, she said something asinine and he said, please, somebody help this woman. She touched and she was like, 
how are you mocking me or trying to say that I should be raped? That's what she got from that. All the black people were like, no, he's saying you stupid. (laughs) All the white folks were like, well, why is he bringing up sexual molestation and and stuff like that? And they were like, no, touched in the black community means there's something not quite right up in the head area. I can understand if you're a white person, for example, and you're talking to a black person and they use language like that and you're you have no clue what the heck. So I do think you do need to be aware, but don't say in general, like, oh, because you're black, you see things this way because this is what the studies show. This is what I've learned. This is how black people respond to a certain situation. That might be part of the reason for whatever problem they're facing, or it might not. Back to my definition of cultural competence, when I say stuff to my therapist, who is a black woman, I don't have to explain things. I don't have to go back and break it down by the, by the numbers because she gets it. Man, if we could practice cultural competence <laughs> in that way, that'd be great. But <laughs> but we live in a reality. <laughs> but we live in a reality where like talk about minoritized. Oh, God. Yikes. Imagine trying to find a black disabled therapist. I've not tried. Actually, I did find one, but she wasn't blind, but she was really busy and our schedules didn't mesh. And I was just like, darn it, because I think you, who knows? Because we have two totally different disabilities. So who knows how that might shake out, right? I even think being totally blind, there are things that I don't understand about having usable vision. If I actually was a mental health professional and somebody was coming to me for cultural competence, there'd be certain things that I wasn't competent in. I mean, there are certain things that I have knowledge about. Are you going to call me knowledgeable, though, just because I have a an idea of it? No. But they need to just call it awareness instead of competence. I agree. That's the hangup. And even then, it's still fucking flawed for the reasons it's that flawed. we already talked about. But it would be less so. You're still going to get into stereotyping and stuff. You are. I don't have a solution. Why don't we? Get into cultural humility. Talk about what that is, why it's better, where it came from, all that. The term cultural humility was introduced to clinical and academic literature in the late 1990s, not too long after cultural competence. And it was introduced as an approach or orientation rather than a fixed set of knowledge or training. And an article with this long-ass title that I'm not going to read, Public health physician Melanie Turvalin and health educator Jan Marie Garcia present it as a new idea of relating to people and diversity. Cultural humility is an approach to sociocultural differences. I like that term because it's more than just cultural differences. I agree. It's an approach to sociocultural differences that is self-first. It emphasizes intersectionality and understanding one's own implicit biases. This approach builds self-awareness and self-reflection, bringing a respectful willingness to learn to interpersonal interactions. And I would say there is a difference between having a respectful willingness to learn and a reluctant willingness to learn because there's so many people today who they got the hackles up and defenses up anytime you try to make them learn some shit about people from minoritized or marginalized backgrounds, folks who are not in the dominant group. They got their hackles up. They do not have a respectful willingness to learn. It has become so triggering for Mm -hmm. those people because they've been taught to loathe diversity and they look at it as a weakening of the dominant culture. That's how they tend to react and they tend to get all up in arms. And so that's why it's been mandated in a lot of workplaces to take these 
diversity and inclusion. We got civil discourse coming up at my workplace. Man, they don't know how to handle it. But when it is a reluctance, when it's forced, unfortunately, it has to be forced because it has to be as proven pretty much ad nauseum at this point. If given the choice, the dominant culture is not going to seek out understanding, inclusion, acceptance. They're not going to do it. You have to create social pressure. You have to make it an issue. So when a person builds cultural humility, they enter their conversations in an open, curious manner. This curiosity isn't directed toward the other person as much as it is at themselves and where their own shortcomings in perception might exist. And they understand that filling in those gaps in awareness is an ongoing process, which I think is also very important because people often complain like, man, there's always some new something. There's always some new terms. There are always these new identities. One, these identities always existed, but now we are creating the language to talk about it. And so, yes, you're going to hear about these experiences. You're going to hear about these identities and you need to. Good Lord, what a terrible thing for there to be another way to talk about how diverse we are and then find a way to unite over that. How dare we? <laughs> In their article, Turvalin and Garcia outlined the following traits of cultural humility, curiosity and willingness to learn about cultural differences, realistic, ongoing self-appraisal, which I think is self-reflection, flexibility, humility and courage, interest in another person's experience, and sensitivity to existing power imbalances. That last one is really important. That was an aspect of cultural humility that Sutton King focused on when I was listening to her speak, because a lot of times people do not understand, even if you think about the provider-client relationship, that in and of itself, no matter what anybody looks like, what their genders are, whatever, a provider-client relationship, there is a, an automatic power imbalance right there. Mm -hmm. You have, as a provider, a background in education that I do not have as a client. Now, what I have as a client is a familiarity with my own experience. I think about, I'm going to talk about somebody else's medical history here, so I'm not going to identify the person, but she was talking about how she has a disabling respiratory condition. She was dealing with a physician as a minor with her parent, who the physician was just like, well, usually kids outgrow this. And the physician was giving this person placebo treatments because they believed that this person had outgrown the condition but was still suffering as a result of, uh, you know, mentally and emotionally having lived through the symptoms. Realistically, they lived through it, but now they thought they were still experiencing symptoms. And so the physician was prescribing placebo stuff. This is a matter of a physician being dismissive of a disabled person's experience. Like, yes, of course, lots of people do outgrow it, but that doesn't mean not everyone does. And like, I'm sorry, I'm going to say this about science. Like, listen, I love science. I love scientific literature. I like learning about all sorts of shit. But there's some shit that I'm just like, they need to get with the program. So like, I'm going to list a couple of things that bother me. For the longest time, people believed as an adult, you can't remember a time in your life prior to age three or whatever people said. You cannot have a memory of a time earlier than age three, which is a bunch of bullshit. And finally, I think the science has evolved in that arena. But also, I'm going to say as a woman, I think that gynecology still has some strides to make. I might hurt somebody if I hear one more time, women aren't supposed to have painful periods. I've heard all sorts of gynecologists say that and female gynecologists say that. And I'm like, I don't know where the science is at on gynecology. 
almost 100 years in the past. But it's not <laughs> it's not in the present. It's just not with us. People can say, well, you know, it's supposed to be this. And if you have painful periods, you have PCOS or endometriosis or whatever the other common condition is. So, like, you can have an awareness of these health conditions because these are all relatively, I don't want to say new discoveries. I guess they are. They kind of are. They've been newly named. But then you're going to say, like, you shouldn't have a painful period. Well, here's the thing I suspect people used to move around a lot more throughout the day when you think of this idea that exercise reduces the painfulness of cramps or the severity of cramps. Um, If a lot of us are sitting still or like sitting at desks, sitting down a lot more, standing in one place a lot more, whatever, being in one position for an extended period of time when compared to our ancestors. It's not crazy to think that, yeah, we're going to be feeling those cramps a lot more because we're not moving around as much. Um, But even if you are, I still think when you have really strong uterine contractions, (laughs) that hurts. It's only been within like recent history, like the last, I'll be generous and say 100 years, that women have been having routine periods because for a while that wasn't even a thing. So how can you make yes distinction and say, you're not supposed to have these because historically speaking, this whole monthly thing is new because people didn't have food, yes. they didn't have water, they didn't have a lot of things. And so the body was like, well, we can't spare. People were in survival mode. They were in survival mode. Oh, so you don't get a period. Or anything for this. Exactly. I get what you're saying. Science leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah. But I do love the fact you can question it. And once old questions have been answered or old things are debunked, then new things take their place. That is yeah. the beauty of science. That is the beauty of science. And uh, yeah, I didn't say everything I just said to make it seem like science is bullshit. I'm not one of those people. I need science in my life. Appreciate it tremendously. There's probably every area of science that's lacking. And it takes 20 years of them saying some stupid shit for them to realize that it's stupid. (laughs) It does. Mm -hmm. So before people redefine certain things and make certain discoveries and realizations and stop thinking that men can... I could go down a hole. Okay, so anyway, (laughs) it's very important now for people to have this awareness of these power imbalances. And I think when we talk about imbalances when it comes to gender, race, or non-disabled versus disabled, I think it's important to have an awareness or a sensitivity to these power imbalances because there are certain groups of people that are more likely to be dismissed. Um, Like I said, we all deal with it. The more you deal with the medical system, whoever you are, you deal with this bullshit. In addition to that, there is more dismissal for more experiences when you have intersecting identities. So if you take my friend I was talking about earlier, they are experiencing dismissal maybe because they were a woman, definitely because they were a minor, and then also as a disabled person. And so the dismissal is compounding there. And for that physician, let's just say they were a man, definitely a man. I don't know if they were white non-disabled in this example, maybe. You have to understand that as a non-disabled man, you being dismissive says that you know more about this person's experience as a disabled female minor when you do not. When you do not. And so people need to have a sensitivity to those imbalances, an understanding of the tendency for different groups of people to be dismissed out of the gate. And I think it should just be in general when it comes to kids, because, oh, my God, we've talked on another episode about how people don't want to treat any children like they're human beings. Mm -hmm. And too bad we need terms to tell each other to do it. This is Intersectional Insights. 
If you like our content, leave us a rating or review to help the podcast. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions, you can email us. I squared, I-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D, hello at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening.